Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today, I'm very excited to welcome uh, Dr. Tamara Tamara McClintock-Greenberg, author of the book, Treating Complex Trauma, Combined Theories and Methods, published in 2020 by Springer Nature with Switzerland. Dr. Greenberg is a clinical psychologist in private practice in San Francisco, California, where she specializes in treating adults with depression, anxiety, relationship issues, trauma, and those who are coping with medical illness, either as a patient or affected family member. Her prior books include The Psychological Impact of Acute and Chronic Illness, as well as Psychodynamic Perspectives on Aging and Illness. Dr. Greenberg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you mentioned in the book that you've been in this field for 30 years. What got you interested in trauma specifically? Well, I think trauma is fairly common. Um, Statistics suggest that around 70% of us experience at least one traumatic event in our lifetime. But I actually did not specialize, uh, you know, ostensibly in trauma in, in graduate school. I was, I was working more with people who had medical problems, acute and chronic medical problems. And it was through that work that I got more interested in trauma for two reasons. One, being a patient in the medical system um, and having a severe life-threatening illness are often traumatic events. Um, you know, surgeries can be traumatic, surgical complications can be traumatic, that kind of thing. Um, but also people who have medical problems are actually more likely to have traumatic backgrounds. And so throughout the years, I just became more and more interested in trauma specifically, um, whether or not it's related to medical issues. So what I, I take your point about how a medical procedure, I imagine, especially if it's an invasive one, or medical illness can be traumatic, but what what counts as a trauma, and how is it different? Is it different from what you're calling complex trauma? Yeah, so so trauma generally we think of as an emotional response to something terrible or distressing, a situation that overwhelms the ordinary systems that we have available to cope. Um, and again, trauma is common. But complex trauma is, it's actually been, the term has been around for since the late 1980s. Um, it was, the term itself was developed by Judith Herman, actually, as a way to distinguish people with post-traumatic stress disorder from complex post-traumatic stress disorder. With complex post-traumatic stress disorder, we're often talking about people who have trauma that starts in childhood and that is repetitive. Um, So we're talking about, when we talk about complex PTSD, we're talking about multiple traumas, often over the course of a lifetime. And the symptoms of complex trauma are more severe and they impact identity much more than, you know, so-called, you know, traditional or simple PTSD does. 
how, how does a complex trauma affect a person's identity? The way that, the way that I think of it is that, um, trauma and, and by, by, I, I also think, you know, neglect in childhood can, can be traumatic. Um, and then of course you have adverse experiences, you know, that scale developed by Folletti and his colleagues that looks at any number of difficult things that, that we could go through in childhood that, that could, uh, lead us to have problems uh, coping as we get older, things like a parent being incarcerated or domestic violence in the home. Any of those kinds of experiences, if you overwhelm the stress of a child, if you overwhelm and stress a child too much, they really have trouble developing, and this is how I discuss it, but like they have trouble developing a relationship with their own mind. And in order for any of us to be in the world and to cope with life, because life is stressful, right? Like, you know, life requires us to have some hardiness because we always are going to need to deal with difficult challenges. But if you don't have a relationship with your mind, if you aren't sure how to deal with stress, if you're not sure what you're really thinking or feeling, if you're not sure how to get your needs met, it just makes all of life that much more difficult. And so for me, when I think of complex trauma, that's kind of my number one criteria. Now, the actual criteria for complex trauma has to do with things like difficulties with relationships, uh, disturbances of, of self, things like dissociation and that sort of thing. Um, but all of this to me is how I think about it is it just has to do with a difficulty being in one's own mind um, and feeling feeling comfortable and safe there, if that makes sense. Well, I, I, it certainly makes sense, but I'm, I'm wondering if we could break that down a little further. I imagine some people might be wondering, well, what does that mean? How do I know if I have a relationship with my mind? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a great, that's a great question because a lot of people will say to me, well, of course I know, I know what's on my mind and I know what I'm thinking. And then I'll ask them to explain it. And then they'll tell me all of their thoughts about other people, or they'll go through anxious ruminations that are kind of running around in their minds, or they'll talk about very external things that they're doing. And when I talk about having a relationship with our mind, I mean, you know, simply being able to know what I'm thinking or feeling, especially in a stressful situation. You know, I don't have to leave because I'm stressed or anxious. I don't have to fight with somebody because I'm scared. I don't have to, you know, focus on other people's limitations. I can think about my own contribution to my problems and, and you know, really, you know, how I feel and what I need for, from other people. The biggest thing about complex trauma is that it's a relational, it's a relational issue. And so people with complex trauma, you know, they, they often don't know how to take care of themselves in relationships. When, when something goes wrong or they feel hurt by a partner or a friend, they consciously or unconsciously automatically blame themselves. They think that they've done something wrong. And then that can lead to a variety of behaviors, which quite frankly, tend to get pathologized in our field. You know, we call it externalization. We talk about people who quote, blow up relationships. And a lot of the time, if you just kind of spend some time talking with people about what's really going on, you'll find out that, that really they're, they're scared. 
you know, they have a, they have an exaggerated fight flight response. Um, and this happens in many areas of their lives. And it often isn't until they're in therapy that they really understand that, that this is something that happens to them all the time and that fear and then the complement of anger sometimes are a big part of their psychic experience. Um, but that leaves out a whole bunch of nuances in terms of, you know, being able to, to deal with people and relationships and all of the other things that are required of us in life, really. So it might be useful for you to tell us what are the most common symptoms of complex trauma? And in particular, are there certain symptoms that people may experience and have no idea are related to some kind of trauma? Yeah, when we think of when we think of complex trauma, we, we're thinking about difficulties with relationships. Often, dissociation is is very common. Um, people who uh, may have substance abuse issues, um, they may be suicidal, um, passively or actively. Um, those symptoms, and then in addition to those, the more traditional PT. PTSD symptoms can be present. So things like hypervigilance, you know, which is always being on guard, um, sleep disturbances, nightmares, psychic numbing, uh, a sense of meaninglessness and a sense of hopelessness. When, when have you, I, I wonder if you've ever worked with someone, I think I have worked with people who present some of these symptoms, but because they don't recall or have never thought about whether they've experienced some kind of complex trauma, they tend to think that these are just their deficiencies. I, I, this is just the way I am, or they personalize the symptoms like, Oh, I'm just an irritable person, or I'm just anxious all the time. How do you talk to someone to get them to consider in a non-threatening way, consider that possibly all these things they've lived with for so long might be tied to some kind of trauma? Yeah. No, it's such an excellent question because we really have to be careful, right? Because our field, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of problems because you had therapists at that time telling people they were traumatized. Um, And I don't think any of us should really be in the business of defining someone else's experience. So it's, it's always a very careful mind we have to walk. And so I... What I do is I just focus on the here and now with people. So I tend, um, even though, you know, I'm trained uh, psychoanalytically, psychodynamically, and I think that way, I don't find it useful um, for most of the people that I see to go back and uh, do, unless they want to. But most people with complex PTSD they may not see their trauma as being relevant to their current problems because as you say, they just think they're messed up. Um, and, um, and so they don't see a connection there. And so for us to make that connection, especially in the beginning of therapy, I don't, I tend not to work that way because it tends to not make sense to people. What I do is I just really try to work on issues in the here and now focusing on current relationships, right? Because the great thing about, 
our minds and how they work is the past is always repeating itself in the present. And so if we just focus on current relationships, we can usually get a window into some of these patterns that keep getting repeated over and over again um, in terms of relational functioning and how people end up feeling hurt by somebody, but then think that they're crazy or that they've done something wrong and they don't know how to sort it out. So it's a chance to kind of teach them in the present um, how to do that. And that way also too, we keep people from getting too overstimulated by thinking about past traumas. Because one of the things about, so again, going back to this distinction between PTSD and complex PTSD is that um, with, with PTSD, let's say you have a really traumatic car accident and it was horrible and you were injured and you're still suffering with the physical limitations of that, but you have good coping skills, you have good you know, family support or support from a partner or friends, you can probably go to therapy if you need it, right? If, you're, if your symptoms, if your PTSD symptoms persist, you could probably go to therapy if you need it and you could talk about the event, you could even do, you know, there's all these different exposure therapies now, right, that that people do to sort of, you know, quote, deal with trauma or work through trauma. For, for traditional PTSD, exposure therapies can be very helpful because you can talk about the event. For complex trauma, there's usually so much stuff that's happened to people that it's hard to even begin to develop a narrative or a story. And so that's why I really focus on working in the here and now and not having people go back and deal with traumas until they're ready, if they're ever ready. Um, and some people may not be, but I still think we can help people get better without having to go back and you know relive lots of traumatic things. Do complex traumas tend more often than not to involve relationships, relationships that were abusive or harmful in an ongoing way? Yes, exactly. So you're, it's again, complex trauma survivors are usually people who've had childhood abuse. Um, in the majority of cases, that's where it starts. So those are always, you know, uh, abuses involving relationships and the betrayal and the exploitation of caregivers. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about your book is that you're surveying and taking account of various, I guess you could say, theoretical approaches to, to treating trauma. And, and it makes me wonder what you have to say or, or what you think is the state of our field, the mental health field, when it comes to offering good treatments for trauma. Um, do, do, you, do we have good treatments available? Do you think we're lacking in some way? And, and are you trying to fill any kind of gap in what's available for treating trauma? Yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of things that I worry about. The main thing that I worry about is that we've be there's, there's a lot of, uh, fighting that goes on between, uh, therapists of different, um, theoretical orientations and we've become very insular in terms of people having their little camps and saying that their one theory is the right theory. Um, and the problem for me with that is people with complex trauma need us to use all of our tools in our toolbox. You know, that was how I was trained in the nineties. Um, 
And so having just one or two theories and then, you know, having every patient that comes through the door be subjected to just one or two ways of working, that really worries me. I mean, actually, it worries me for for everybody in the patient population, but especially for people with complex PTSD, we need to be really flexible, we need to be really compassionate, and we need to, to do a bunch of different things to help them get better. Um, so that's, so that's one concern. And then the second concern, and this is, this is fairly controversial, but I do think that, that, um, exposure therapies get, um, promoted, um, before patients are ready to tolerate them. Um, and that worries me a great deal. Now, when exposure therapy works, um, it, it can be incredibly helpful and life-changing for people. However, the dropout rate for exposure therapies, it can be really, really high, as high as 40% in some studies. And so that to me suggests that that isn't a treatment that's well tolerated by everybody. And again, when it works, that's great. I don't have a stake in the game of, you know, what theory, you know, uh, is best. But my point is we should try different theories. If something doesn't work, then we pivot and we do something else. A lot of times what we see in our fields is something doesn't work. The patient complains and then we're like, well, no, then you just need more of this. Um, And I've seen this in psychoanalytic clinicians. I've seen this in CBT clinicians. I've seen this in people doing exposure therapy. And it's like, no, if somebody tells you something's not working, you stop it you know, and you do something else and you figure out with them what's going to work. Because otherwise, in a funny way, you reenact the trauma, you know, the the domination, the coercion, uh, the the control. Exactly. I'm wondering, well, first of all, for our listeners who may not know what what it is, when you talk about exposure therapy, can, can you say a word about what exposure therapy is? Yeah, exposure therapy... I mean, true exposure therapy, I think you could say was developed when EMDR came out. So that was in the, what, late 80s, early 90s, Francine Shapiro's theory. Um, And the idea is, is that by pairing, back then it was just eye movements, and now they use tactile uh, stimulation and other things. But by pairing um, eye movements or other stimulation with thinking about trauma, the thought is it'll decrease the intensity of distress that people have when they um, are reminded of traumatic events. And then since then, um, uh, you know, prolonged exposure therapy and cognitive processing therapy are two newer therapies um, that are used frequently uh, as exposure therapies for people who have, uh, you know, had trauma and they basically involve, you know, pairing relaxation techniques with thinking about the traumas and they tend to be more cognitive uh, behavioral oriented treatments. However, I should say though, in, in fairness to, to, to those folks, all therapy is exposure therapy, right? Cause even psychodynamic clinicians, they expect at some point that the patient is going to get down to the business of talking about their trauma. And that's a kind of exposure therapy too. So whenever somebody is talking about trauma, really, it's it's an exposure therapy. You know, I was thinking the same thing because from an interpersonal relational psychoanalytic perspective, which is the one I work 
from. It occurs to me that if the patient will either at some point talk about the trauma or they will reenact it mm-hmm. with, with the therapist. In other words, that inevitably the therapeutic relationship may come to resemble or embody some of the dynamics, the traumatic dynamics that they experienced and, and then they will have to be addressed. But the addressing it is in vivo. It is a kind of exposure therapy, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is. Or, and, and at li- as you're applying living, you know, sometimes you just live it with your pet patient or client, you know, and you work through, you know, like, um, you know, they may have feelings about you that they've had around about other people in the past, but they can't express it to the people from the past so they can express it in the here and now towards you. And that can be incredibly healing. You know, if, if we could tolerate that and also admit that we're imperfect and that we make mistakes and repair, you know, rup- as you know, repair ruptures and stuff when they happen. I hear you, though, as advocating for sensitivity and an attunement with with what works with the patient at any particular time. Yeah. So I, I don't hear you as saying, speaking against exposure, th- something like exposure therapy, but but that it's important to feel it out and to, and to get a feel for what the patient can handle and, and what they can't at any moment. Exactly. I mean, if you look, if you talk to the people at the VA, you know, some of these older, you know, especially Vietnam vets who've discovered, you know, some of these exposed, the newer exposure therapies, they'll tell you like, this has changed my life. You know, why hasn't this been here before? I've tried everything else and this works. And so, yes, it's it's phenomenal when something works. And our main goal is, is we just want to help people get better. What worries me is when we just get too um, married to one theoretical approach and think it's going to work for everybody. Because that just isn't, that's just not realistic. And, and what I like about your book is that I think the people who read it will be better informed and better equipped to find good therapy and to know what what good therapy for trauma might look like and and I was hoping you might tell us what are what are some of the core features or core ingredients that should be part of any treatment for complex trauma yeah. Um, well, and, and really any treatment in general, this goes back to, you know, Michael Lambert's and John Norcross's research, which has been around for at least four decades now. Um, and, you know, they just came out with a new book about basically how psychotherapy works. And then Bruce Wampold is another um, fantastic researcher on, you know, what key ingredients seems to, to make therapy work. But basically, what we know is that the bulk of how people get better has to do with the relationship between the therapist and the client. And so technique accounts for 10% (laughs) technique, meaning the method that we use counts for maybe 10 to 15%. um, But 30% of how we understand how psychotherapy works has to do with how the client and the therapist get along and empathy seems to be a key part of that. Um, how empathic, uh, we can be with our patients, but also, you know, Bruce Wampold's research is really, is really illuminating because he's found, you know, that, 
some therapists are twice as effective as other therapists in terms of having good outcomes with clients. And the hypotheses about why that is, you know, has to do with probably how much therapy we've had ourselves. Um, uh, but he talks specifically about, um, you know, our own verbal fluency, our own ability for insight, you know, our own capacity for mentalize, mentalizing with ourselves, um, he, having a sense of humility, um, understanding how our own minds work, um, admitting mistakes, being able to work with diverse clients and pivot when needed. Um, those seem to be really key ingredients. And so as a, you know, as a client, right. Or, you know, when I'm, when I'm a patient myself, I I want somebody who I feel like is going to be flexible and warm, um, and try to be empathic, even if there's going to be some things that might be hard to understand or might not make sense. Um, and somebody who could really pivot approaches if something doesn't work. That's what I look for when I, when I go to a therapist and that's what I think everybody should look for. Now for someone who's never been to therapy before and who's hearing you say that the most important ingredient really is the quality of the therapeutic relationship. To be clear, does that mean that patients should expect that their therapist will be like their friend or, or like a family member? Or is there, is there another way of understanding what, what a good therapy relationship is? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Thank you for asking it. Yeah, you you want you the boundaries need to be in place. In addition to what I said, the boundaries do need to be, you need to have good boundaries because therapy just it doesn't work if there's not good boundaries. That's honestly the most benign way to say it. Um, people get better because in therapy it's a protected relationship and there's good boundaries. You don't see each other outside of you know outside of the treatment. And it's a safe, it's a safe space. So it's not like your buddies, you know, and I guess there's an art to doing that as a therapist, right? It's, it's hard to, it's, at least for me, it took me a long time to learn how to do that. Cause it's not like your buddies with people, but you do want to be, you do want to get along. You do want to be able to laugh with somebody, you know, um, if, if that's, you know, if that's something that works for someone else, you do want to, you know, be able to, not always be so serious and to be able to talk about a variety of things, but it's not, a, it's not exactly a friendship. I want to, I want to pivot to another topic that you address in your book and it's substance abuse. And I wanted to bring it up because I think a lot of people to a lot of people, it may not occur to them that there's a link between mm. substance abuse and trauma and might wonder, well, why would those, what would one have to do with the other? What's your answer to that? I mean, different people have different ideas. My feeling about it though, is that um, it's a self-medication. I think substances tend to, to be very self-medicating. I also think people with complex trauma tend to dissociate. By dissociate, I mean, get out of their minds, leave their minds. And substances help us do that, right? Um, it can quiet flashbacks, it can quiet noise, it can keep people from thinking things that they don't want to think about. Um, it can, and then of course it depends, right? Different substances have different effects, but you know, it can stimulate you if you don't have any energy, it can quiet you if you're too hyper, those kinds of things. So I think of it as self-medication. Do you find, or, or do you know if others have found whether 
in the lives of people who present with complex trauma, whether there's more higher incidence of substance abuse, say, in their home or in the family, in the home environment, compared to people who don't identify as having complex trauma? That's a that's a really great question. I, um, my memory from the research I did from the book was mainly that we always think of substance abuse having a genetic component as well as an environmental component. And the environmental component isn't necessarily modeling Oh, you know what you know what you're implying. You'd think it would be, but it isn't necessarily modeling. Um, what happened? The if I remember correctly, people with complex trauma are more likely to use in order to avoid specific PTSD symptoms, whereas people without complex trauma are more likely to use due to suggestibility. Right. I, I'm also. I, I guess I was also wondering. In the case of, say, a person growing up with someone who was abusive, chronically abusive, does does it tend to be the case that that person, whether it was an abusive, you know, father or uncle or parent or whatever, that is there a high higher chance than normal that that person also might have been uh, abusing substances? Um. Yes. I mean, again, that kind of goes back to, is it modeling, you know, like you see someone abusing substances, um, but, you know, definitely there are familial, there are definitely familial patterns with substance abuse for sure. You know, another topic that you address head on in your book is the issue of race and minority status as they intersect with trauma. Can you tell us what you found from your research and from your experience here? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's been on my mind for for a long time. I mean, obviously, it's on our minds more now. Um, But systemic racism, you know, is not new. Um, And so I've long thought about, you know, the, you know, sort of traumas that are associated with being a a non-white person, you know, in a, in a, in a, country uh, that can be very discriminating and very hostile. And so, you know, people use, people use the term quote micro trauma, the most common term that people use to describe um, what uh, non-white folks, and this, by the way, this applies to the, uh, to many people in the LGBTQ community, but microaggressions is, is a, the sort of term that's used to describe that um, there are insults that people experience um, related to, you know, being viewed as an other. But because it's no longer, or you could argue it was no longer until uh, three and a half years ago, it was no longer appropriate to sort of make overt um, slurs about people. Then microaggressions became a way, and this is described really well by Daryl Sue, microaggressions became a way to express hostility um, towards people uh, without seeming, quote, overtly racist. And there's a great deal of data that um, microaggressions take their toll um, on people. Uh, some studies have found that African Americans have higher rates of PTSD, um, but certainly uh, among all groups subject to microaggressions, it, it definitely impacts well-being. Um, it adds a great deal of stress and it impacts well-being. And so, you know how, and then layer that onto 
you know, maybe, you know, if, if there are histories of trauma um, and it's just an added burden would be the way that I would think about it. I, I appreciate you bringing up microaggressions because it's an example of how racism, prejudice can traffic in ways that are s seemingly unseen, but still felt, you know, where there's plausible yeah. deniability, but it's, it's like you, you, you just hit me. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I feel like I just got stung even though I, I didn't see it happen. Exactly. And, you know, I, I have a little bit of a pet peeve about the way as a society, we sometimes take up terms really quickly before understanding them. And I, and I want to make sure our listeners understand what systemic racism is, you know, which is the idea that racism that's sort of baked into the system so that it, it shows up in places that you wouldn't expect it, like in education or in, in the amount of resources that are, that are allocated to one community versus another. Um, anyway, where, where I'm going with this is, do you think that part of why uh, minority communities experience so much trauma or because the reason why their trauma is so potent, is it is it because it happens more under the radar because it's so easily denied? by the perpetrators or by the bystanders? Does that, does that make trauma worse is I guess what I'm asking. Hey, you know what, it's, that's a really good question. I mean, one thing that we, it depends, it depends on the community and it depends on, I guess, the family. We know that people are less likely to develop PTSD if they are part of a group when something happens. So 9-11, um, right? People who were all there, they all experience the same thing. Um, th there's a kind of normalizing and support that is really healing. So it would depend in part on, are you alone and isolated? In, in Is somebody denying your reality? Or is somebody saying, no, you were likely pulled over because you're African-American and that's how it works in this country. You didn't do anything wrong. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference between that and just saying, oh, no, don't worry about it. I'm sure it was nothing. Right? Right. Which can leave you feel if you're the person who was pulled over and you feel like something, just, I think I was pulled over because of my race, but you're told, no, no, it wasn't because of that. It's an invitation for you to feel like you're crazy yep. and imagining things. And, and so I, I wonder if that explains some of the mitigating effect of having a group or having people validate your trauma, if that makes it easier. That's exactly to, right. To recover from the trauma. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is your attention to the body in the book. Um, I think this is so important because I think as therapists, sometimes we're a bit cerebral and we're a little less comfortable with nonverbal ways of thinking and working. And can you tell us about what you think is why attention to the body is an important part of treatment for complex trauma? Um, I think I heard the last part of your, your question. I think we cut out there for a second, but you're asking about why attention to the body is really important in complex trauma. Yes. Yes, I am. And sorry, sorry about that. I think you were sending me a message privately and, and so a little behind the scenes for our, our listeners. Um, but yes, why, why is attention to the body? What does the body have to do with trauma and why attend to it in treatment? Well, the, the body, it, you know, as Bessel van der Kolk, I think he's the one who introduced this idea, but the body does hold on to trauma. 
And, you know, one of the things that we know now after decades and decades and decades of research is that uh, trauma and also psychological states that can result from trauma experience, psychological problems like PTSD or intense anxiety, or even character traits such as cynical mistrust or anger um, and depression, all of those things can are associated with the development of, of health problems. Um, for example, heart disease is probably the most robust indicator um, uh, where we see a link between psychological states and illness. But there's data with, with a number of illnesses. And again, this is not to say that that the psychology causes physical illness. That's not at all what I'm saying. It's just that when you stress out an organism, so much. There's only so many resources they have to deal with, um, you know, to deal with uh, emotional challenges. And so the body can be very revved up. We talk about the the fight flight access, but also a more contemporary way to talk about it is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access. And basically we know that revved up physical states increase the presence of, you know, different stress hormones which can increase inflammation, which is thought to, to influence the development of a number of medical problems. And so, again, it's always a tricky thing to talk about because I don't want to ever make you know, clients feel blamed you know, for any kind of illness. And it's just not helpful necessarily therapeutically sometimes to, to point that out. But it is, I think, important to remember that if we take care of our bodies and try to manage our stress in whatever way, you know, uh, that works, that works for us, you know, again, people talk about meditation and it's kind of got this, this reputation as being like a panacea, you know, for a lot of people with complex PTSD, that doesn't work. It makes people too anxious. So however people though can work on managing stress, you know, dealing, dealing, you know, trying to keep stress hormones low by managing anxiety, things like sleeping well, exercise, basic preventative care stuff, that stuff can be, can be really important, especially for people who have histories of trauma. Well, listen, we are almost out of time. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I've, I've learned so much. Tell us before we go, what are you working on these days? What have you got next? Oh, well, I was, I can't say too much about it because it's still in development, but I was approached about doing another, um, uh, another book on, uh, complex trauma. So that's in the works, maybe more information, hopefully soon to come, but that's all I can say for now. Well, that sounds promising. I I hope you'll come back on the show, uh, if, and when that, that book comes out. And again, the name of the book is Treating Complex Trauma, Combined Theories and Methods. And my guest today has been Tamara McClintock-Greenberg. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Take care.